All right, let's go 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. We can't be anything other than who we are, and who we are is awkward. But we love it, and God loves us, and uh, well, what are you going to do? All right, so John, 1 John chapter 4. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind the, uh, me in just a little bit. Uh, we also have some uh, Bibles scattered around the room, little racks underneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible of your very own, we say this every week, but we say this every week for a reason, uh, we, we would invite you to take that physical Bible home. Uh, the reason for that is incredibly simple. We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. We, we want you to know God. We want everything in and about and around your life to be shaped by knowing him, filtered through the lens of knowing him. And so uh, if you don't have a copy of the scriptures yourself, that puts you at a disadvantage for knowing him. And so we want to fix that. And so if you don't have one of those, uh, one you can call your own, uh, take that one. There's, there's other ones available scattered throughout the building, but I mean, that's a good one. It's hardcover. It's got nice, pretty gold letters on it. And so whatever. All right, um, we're pretty deep now into our effort uh, to kind of walk through the season of celebrate Advent together. Uh, we've made it now to our third week of of emphasis. Now, if you were uh, a part of a more traditional church, uh, you'd actually be ahead of us right now. Uh, they, you would have started a week earlier and would be on week four already. Uh, but we make a habit around here of trying to protect Thanksgiving's airspace. And right? we think that it's important too and needs its own little little area of, of emphasis. And so uh, we started our Advent celebration on December 4th instead of the traditional uh, kind of fourth Sunday before uh, Christmas. Uh, but it, I keep using that word Advent as if everybody in the room knows what it what it means right and so if, if you're new to the whole kind of the whole church thing if that's if that's something that you haven't waded through before you might be wondering what in the world is advent well well advent is a latin based word that means the coming or the arrival adventus if you want to sound all hoity-toity about it all right it means the coming or the arrival and and, and while in a cultural sense Christmas, uh, it usually, at least for most people, includes at least a nod to the Jesus story for a lot of people. Uh, it's also, at the same time, usually filled with a million other things that sometimes crowd out the Jesus story. And, and, and sadly, sometimes even a number of things that are intellectually and logically inconsistent with the Jesus story. And so, uh, Advent, though, it, it runs in the opposite direction. Rather than a nod, rather than some lip service, Advent is an intentional focus uh, in the Christian church to kind of marvel in and celebrate Jesus' first coming with an eye all the time, a simultaneous eye, to, and a hopeful longing towards his second coming. That's what Advent is. It's a month-long celebration where we celebrate Jesus' first coming while longingly hoping, expecting, pleading with him to come soon again. It's not that those other cultural trappings around the Christmas season are bad or, or, or sinful. Maybe they are, maybe they, they aren't. But by focusing our attention specifically on Jesus in this month, who he is and what he has done, everything else becomes more clearly defined and usually ends up in its proper place, Right? Um, simply put, Advent is a countercultural posture that seeks to put Jesus back on top of the pedestal for this month. And like everything else in life, when Jesus is where he's supposed to be, everything else, or at least most everything else, tends to fall into its rightful place. It's not hard, I don't, I don't think it's hard at all, to pick on the Christmas season, quote-unquote, here in the West. Right? Um, we, we run through the same exact routine 
every single year. Mariah Carey, Hallmark movies, and an endless stream of Amazon packages at your front door, right? Lather, rinse, repeat. It's what we do. It's not hard to pick on the Christmas season. Even Charlie Brown was getting in on uh, kind of hating what Christmas commercialism had become all the way back in the 60s. Right, we got little kids in our house, which means we definitely watch Charlie Brown Christmas at my house. I don't know if you watch it at your house. We definitely watch it in my house. And for those of you who have not yet watched it this year, it is Charlie Brown's frustration over Christmas commercialism and all the stuff that it's been built up to that sets the stage for Linus to famously drop the blanket and quote Luke 2. Like, that's, the, that's the, the placeholder that it sets on. That's the catalyst for the greatest moment in Christmas movie history. A too commercialized Christmas was not just something that showed up in the 80s and 90s. We've been dealing with it for a while now. As a culture, we've been shifting Christmas in the wrong, in the wrong direction for a very, very long time. But, but ultimately, and ultimately I think that I think that commercialism angle, I think that's actually low-hanging fruit. I think it's low-hanging fruit. Ebenezer Scrooge was able to point to it just as easily as anybody else can. If Ebenezer Scrooge can point to it, maybe we don't have to try so hard. Now see, pastorally speaking, I am far less concerned in what people are spending their money on each and every Christmas than what people are continuing to put their hope in. And um, it's entirely possible. I don't know if you've seen it. It's entirely possible to take a stand against things that the world would describe as evil or bad, like commercialism or fill-in-the-blank other stuff. It's, in fact, it's an easy target. It's entirely possible to hold up other ideas and postures that the world would call good. It's entirely possible to do both of those things, and both of those things with all of the energy in you, and still completely miss the point of what Jesus came to do. You can miss the point entirely. And so all this month long, we've, we've encouraged our church family to, to kind of take our foot off of the gas pedal. To slow down. Instead of playing into the trend of everything in our culture, everything in our lives, ramping up and up and up and up, to instead slow down. Not because slower is necessarily better. Busy calendars are not ungodly. And in the same way, empty calendars are not automatically righteous. That's not what we're talking about. No, no, we slow down because I think that the tempo change can help us focus specifically on Jesus in a special way. All right, like a baseball pitcher switching to the changeup because he knows the batter is sitting on a fastball. All right, all he has to do is drop it about seven miles an hour, and that guy's going to get turned inside out. Those of you who have no idea what baseball is, I'm sorry. It made sense in my head. I got a bunch of really glazed over looks. Tom knew, though. All right, so... So we, we made it so far. We made it so far to, to look at two major themes of Advent, peace and hope, right? This morning I want, I want to look at the third major theme of Advent, love, which, I mean, totally isn't a debated topic in our culture, right? Like nobody has an opinion about what love is these days. I'm just going to go ahead and guess. I, I feel like I can walk out on this branch. I'm just going to go ahead and guess that every time you come across the word love in our culture, it is always biblically defined, and it is never, I mean ever, tossed into an argument like a grenade that's meant to silence all opposition. Right? Now once, you never come across that? I've never come across that either. So we've talked about this a ton in, in, over, over the last several years. Most recently, we discussed it. Um, last spring when we were walking through the fruit of the Spirit together, we 
spend a whole week focusing on the fruit of the Spirit of love. But like a lot of other words in our cultural lexicon, um, the vocabulary word love is used over and over and over again in such a nebulous, and I would argue such a cheap way. Such a cheap way. It's become a junk drawer kind of term for a whole range of personal emotions that, that we might have toward something, whether it's liking something, chasing something, cherishing something, appreciating something, enjoying something, allowing something, using something, caressing something, or even just a momentarily satisfaction in something. We've created a culture, a moment in our culture, where the phrase, I love blank, can literally be filled by anything. Material or immaterial, real or imaginary, it can be filled by anything, and everybody else just nods along as if that makes perfect sense. Oh yeah, that's love. But we still have this innate understanding inside of us that the word love is supposed to mean something big and weighty and important, right? That it's It's supposed to be reserved for special moments. And so even though we usually mean something, I think, self-serving by it, we'll employ the word in moments where we want other people to think that our intent is noble. Or we'll use it in moments where we want others to believe that, you know, we're more serious than we were the last time. No, 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 it's love this time. Or we'll use it in moments where we want to get people to stop asking critical questions about our decision-making. Oh, it's love, is it? Well, I mean, that changes everything. Here, I was just thinking it was attraction. Oh, here, I was just thinking that it was convenience. But love is love, right? I mean, what can you do about it? And so we take what I think used to be a clearly defined and incredibly selfless word, and we turn it into something that now appears to be vacuous and incredibly selfish. And then further beyond that, uh, we throw that word into a season where noble and weighty words are held up as values that we should all cherish and chase after, right? We, don't, we have a ton of that this month. And so, and so when, you, when you've got that and you throw it into the, the Christmas season mix, I think what we end up with is a recipe for running in the exact opposite direction than the character of God. We just run headlong in the opposite direction of what we'll be pleasing to him and clearly point to him absolutely nobody in our culture i I definitely can't find one myself but absolutely nobody in our culture would ever bat an eye that the the christmas season is about loving others right like turn on tv tonight whatever christmas special is on that's going to be the message Nobody would ever bat an eye that the Christmas season is about loving others. Of course, we'd, we'd all get behind that. But the moment you ask them to define what exactly is meant by loving others, you're going to get some things thrown into the list that aren't exactly helpful. And you're also going to get some things thrown into the list that the Bible would actually point to and say is incredibly unloving. So the next question is, is obvious, I think. If the Bible supposedly holds this countercultural definition of love, what exactly is that definition, Right? And it's here that we get to turn to 1 John. 1 John is a letter written by the Apostle John uh, to several churches in the region of western Turkey. Uh, probably the last quarter, I think probably, of uh, the first century A.D. Uh, so probably like 70 to 90-ish 
E, which means that this letter is written later than most of the other stuff that we have from the New Testament. Uh, most of the, the majority of the New Testament was written in the 50s and 60s, some as early as the 40s, we think. Uh, but John was probably the youngest of all the disciples, so that means he's still around and all the other ones are gone. All right? Now, we think that John is living in Ephesus at the time of this writing, and he's writing this letter to uh, a number of churches around the coast of Turkey in that kind of, kind of western region of Asia Minor. All right? so, um, so uh, they're dealing with some false teachers. Uh, they're, they're dealing with a bunch of people uh, following that false teaching. And then sad, sadly, tragically, they were also dealing with people leaving the church when the healthy people started fighting back for good things. All right? It's a sad reality, but it's the truth. It's just, it wasn't a fun day at all. all right? they, had, they had false teachers. They were combating false teaching. And a bunch of people who were believing that false teaching going, I'm out of here. I'd rather do something else. And so John writes them this letter to both encourage them and then also to kind of give them some tips for how to navigate through kind of identifying the good from the bad when it comes to teachers and teaching, okay? He kind of gives them a roadmap to follow. And at the beginning of chapter 4, he tells them to test everything. Test everything. To look out for what, what in our culture we would probably describe as red flags. Call red flags, right? Uh, warning signs that are obvious if you've only got your eyes open to pay attention to them. You see that? Ought to tell you a few things. Because regardless of what someone might claim about themselves, present about themselves, not everyone who claims to be from God and a leader for the church is actually, you know, from God and a leader for the church. Like, just because they claim it doesn't mean they are. And so John tells them to test several things. First, he tells them to test what they do and don't say about Jesus. Because if they get Jesus wrong, guess what? They're getting everything else wrong. Tells them to test their advice and their solutions against the solutions that are being offered up by the world. See if they're actually different. If, if the solution to, their, to the problem is to heap on more of the problem, they're probably a red flag. John tells them to, to, to measure these teachers against what the apostles had already taught. God hadn't changed his mind. If they're given a different message, maybe, maybe there's a problem there. It's a red flag. But then beginning in verse 7, John points to the most important thing to test. Let's look at it together. John chapter 4, 1 John 4, starting in verse 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. All right, so what, what's John talking about there? Well, he just gave both a positive and a negative test for measuring someone's claim to know God. He says, look for how they love others. Watch their life. See how they act. Are they actually loving towards others? If you, if you see love in their life, good. If you don't see love in their life, bad. In fact, he goes all the way into saying that claiming to know God without having a love for others in and around you is actually proof that that person doesn't know them, that that person doesn't know God. If you may profess to be a Christian, but if you don't love, that means you're not actually a Christian. And that is a massive claim, right? It's an unbelievably massive claim. Well, what about, what about their testimony, right? What, 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 if they, what if they prayed a prayer? What if we dunked them in some water one time? John says, if they don't love, they're not who they say they are. And so, 
more than just red flags for measuring potential leaders, John opens up this test to the whole church. He says, beloved, let us love one another. But here's the deal, right? We come into reading these verses preloaded with our own cultural understandings and definitional leanings. And so we, we take our broken and, and self-focused idea of love and we start doing the math, right? And so we measure others by what we think uh, is the loving thing to do in a given situation. And then maybe if we're brave, we even measure ourselves. But I mean, of course, we've got some really good reasons for why we didn't have to love in the same way that they had to love, right? Never been guilty of that. And so we take our preloaded idea of love and we twist it and we tweak it and we bend it until we finally get it into a shape that fills whatever need we happen to need it to fill. Loving. See, we're loving. So a very, very real danger. Whenever anybody, myself included, whenever anybody is reading 1 John 4, a very real danger is that we are tempted to take the, an idea of love that is already misshapen already bent to the wrong form, and then keep bending it to serve some kind of sinful interest in our own hearts. So how does what John is saying get us any closer at all to a real, eternal definition of love? Well, at the end of verse 8, John grounds his definition of love in something much more stable than ourselves and significantly less sin-bent than ourselves. He says, because God is love. God is love, meaning love is not something, merely something that God does, all right? Love is an immutable or, or we could say unchanging and fundamental reality of who God actually is. And this is the part of our time together. Right, where you might be wishing that you had brushed up on your Trinitarian theology before you walked in the door. I'm sorry I didn't warn you in advance. All right? So, one God existing eternally in three persons forever in perfect relationship with each other. Boom. You got that, right? All right, I'll say it again because it matters. All right, one God existing eternally in three persons forever in perfect relationship with each other. All right? this, this means that this is not, love is not something that God decided to do one day. It's something he has always done. It's something he has always been. No, perfect love has always, forever, existed between the members of the Trinity, full stop. No waiver. There's never been a moment and there will never be a moment where God has not existed in the fullness of perfect love. And because God is infinitely perfect in love, that means that we get our definition of what love is not by looking at Webster's Dictionary or the modern version, just Googling it. It means that we don't get our definition of love even by looking how the word might be uh, popularly used in our cultural context. No, we and others ought, the word is ought, to get our definition of love by looking at the author and perfecter of it. To see God correctly is to see love correctly, period. Oh, but I, I, I read my Bible. Like, I know that there's some other things that God is, right? I know there's some other things about his character and personality and things that he has in perfection. I mean, he's not just love, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. He's not just love. Nailed it. 
And all of his other perfect things shape the definition of his perfect love. And his perfect love shapes the definition of all of his other perfect attributes. Starting to get in your head on this? We say it this way. You cannot define God's character without infinitely perfect love. And neither can you define infinitely perfect love without the infinitely perfect character of God. They cannot be separated out. You leave either one of them off the table and you mess up the definition of both. So no matter what subject we're talking about then, love or anything else, no matter what subject we're talking about, whenever we try to take something that is ultimately defined by God's character, and then we pull that out and we try to use it for some other self-serving purpose, it means that we're not just playing games with vocabulary words. It means that we're actually demeaning his character. It's a weighty thing. It's an incredibly weighty thing. We cheapen our own and everybody else's understanding of who God is. So I think there's a fair and obvious question to roll out of that, right? What, what should God do about that? Right? What should God do about those who sully and malign people's understanding of who he is? And we'll come back to that in a moment. Listen, I get it. I, I, I get it. The, the idea of God's character, uh, because he, we can't see him, right? Uh, he's not standing right in front of us for us to kind of give shape and identity to. The idea of God's character serving as a definition is a little hard, I get it, for some people to kind of wrap their heads around and latch onto as an idea. In fact, I, I actually think it's impossible to, for everybody to latch their heads around it fully. And it seems so does the Apostle John, because look what he points to next in verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. Verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent, us, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Okay, so John says, hey, you want to know what perfect love looks like? Great news. I got wonderful news for you. Let's hear this. God decided to show it off. He decided to show off his perfect love to the world. He made it manifest, we're told. That's a word that we don't use much in our culture, manifest. Most of the time when we see that word, it's being used in a spiritualized setting, but an unbiblical and unchristian setting. It often carries the idea of producing something out of nothing because of you know, positive thoughts or good energy. But that's more likely the, the worldview of the Old Testament magicians than, than the worldview of God's people. And so John's not using it that way at all. How, how is John using the word manifest here? Well, he means that God revealed love in its fullness. He unfolded it to the world. He unfolded it for all to see. How did he do that? By sending his son. By sending Jesus so that we might live through him. So church, according to the Bible, according to the Bible, love is defined by God's character and it is illustrated by the gift of his son who is given for our good. That's the Bible's definition of love. 
Not because we loved him, but because of his great love for us. We're told God's loving gift was not deserved by us. It was not something that you know, we earned because we managed to string together enough good days that he looked down and went, oh yeah, I think I'm going to reward that. It's not a pizza party at the elementary school. No, the gift of the son was a one-sided affair towards an ungodly and disobedient people that sprang forth out of the perfect love of the Father, which means, church, that part of our definition of love must, must is the correct word, must include an initiating posture. It's not love without initiation. Love cannot sit back and simply wait for the beloved to ask for help. That's not love. Now, there may be moments of teaching where someone is allowed to fail in order to grow. Perfect love aims for what's best for the beloved, even if temporary pain is involved. It doesn't take the easy route. And everybody here who's raised kids or taught in school or uh, were a really good boss, you've lived those experiences, right? You've walked through that. But it is the exact opposite of love to think, nah, nah, they're going to have to humble themselves and come to me. That's not love, that's selfishness. That's not love, that's pettiness. Sin. No, perfect love pursues. Perfect love pursues. It goes after the beloved. It empties itself and it freely and joyfully lays down both right and privilege. It sacrifices at great cost to itself to see the beloved set free. And the greater the love, the more easily and freely the great sacrifice is given up. Which is exactly what we see at the end of verse 10, right? The son was not simply given as a gift because, well, you know, it'd be really nice to hang out with him for a while. No, he was given as a gift, we're told, to be the propitiation for our sins. Another big word that we got to deal with, right? What in the world is propitiation? Like, let's be honest, that's not, that's not likely a word you're going to hear around Christmas time, especially outside of this building. Anybody come across propitiation this week other than me saying it? I'm waiting. (laughs) No. What in the world is propitiation? What is that? It, It literally means to appease wrath. To appease wrath. It's a sacrifice, a, a payment made in order to cover a debt so that warring parties can, can come together in peace can be reconciled. It means to appease wrath. But, uh, but it, I mean, isn't that more of a, like a Good Friday and Easter kind of topic, right? I mean, Jesus' death and resurrection, they're, they're important at all, but like we all came together here to celebrate sweet baby Jesus, right? This is a Christmas series. Yeah. Yeah, and John tells us here that sweet baby Jesus specifically came to die. He specifically came to die. God sent his son. What we celebrate in the incarnation, what we celebrate in the eternal son of God coming, putting on flesh, dwelling among us, living sinlessly, is ultimately about celebrating what he came to do after living sinlessly. It has a very specific and divine end goal. He came to die as a payment for sin. The Bible teaches that all people by default are separated relationally from God because of our sin, that we are owed the right and just punishment for sin. The Bible calls that place hell. Not a fun place. God's enemies are to get what God's enemies deserve, we're told. 
But the Bible also teaches right here in 1 John 4 that while we were enemies, while we were sinners separated from God, that God acts upon his world in perfect love and he pursues a people for himself. He goes after them. He didn't sit back and wait to be asked. No, he goes and gets them. God the Father freely and joyfully gives. God the Son freely and joyfully empties himself of right and privilege, a sacrifice of great cost to see the beloved set free. Listen, maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus yet. Man, I love that you pressed in this far. Keep pressing in. But I also don't believe for even a moment that you're here by accident. And God has brought you here this morning in order for you to respond to what he has done on your behalf. You, have, you may have walked in the door this morning with some cute ideas about what Christmas is all about. Listen, uh, uh, all of those ideas may or may not be a good thing, but I can tell you what they definitely are. They are a platform that <laughs> the, a much more massive story sits upon. And if you miss the much more massive story, uh, you're kind of missing out on what this season's all about. The story that God rescues his people. He doesn't sit back and wait. He goes and gets them. He draws near. Jesus came and lived the sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on a cross as a propitiation to make payment to appease wrath for sin. He was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now, as conqueror and accomplisher of every single thing he came to do in his first advent, he calls on you to respond to him in repentance and in faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord before he comes back for his second advent. You can do that today. You can respond. You can respond to Jesus I got more to talk about here, but let's talk when we're done. What about the rest of us, though, right? Well, we got two more verses to look at. Look at verse 11. Verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So the command on God's people is obvious, right? We want to look more and more like him. So we seek to emulate God's perfect love to the best of our ability. Um, are you going to be able to pull that off this week? No. No, you're not. Are you going to continue to, to struggle to love in the ways that you've been called to this week? Absolutely. Are you going to be able to, uh, to perfectly show off and illustrate, uh, kind of emulate God's character and paint a 100% accurate picture of who God is by the way you love others? No. It might already be obvious to most everybody in here, but perfect love doesn't exist naturally in me. I wrestle with that. I wrestle with that hard. In fact, left to my own devices, I, I very often run in the opposite direction. Um, even on my better days when I try really, really hard, I still tend to slip up into redefining love into something that serves myself. Just just as I need God to save me in spite of myself, I also desperately need God to continually prop me up in my feeble attempts at obedience. But here's some good news. I think it's really good news. It's because that's exactly what he's promised to do. 
It's exactly what He's promised to do for us. Faithfully and tenderly prop us up. His perfect love does not run out of gas down the home stretch. I promise you, He planned ahead. He's got enough in the tank. He, he, he has declared us holy and He is actively making us holy. He brings us all the way to the finish line. And so because we want to look more and more like him, we aim ourselves towards a forward-leaning love that initiates good for others. Yes, even, especially our enemies. Well, he did first. In addition to that, we aim for serving and for sending long before others are capable of loving us in return, even if they never do. In addition to that, we, we also lay down what's good for us or maybe even what's owed to us for the good of the beloved. You can have it. It's yours. Whatever you need. Our highlight this song this morning, it was, it was all about sharing the good news of great and perfect love, right? Go tell it on the mountain. Let's follow the logic here. If, if the greatest act of love the world has ever known is the sending of the Son to be the propitiation for our sin. God reconciling us to Himself. That means, that means that the greatest act of love we can participate in is the announcement of that propitiation to the nations. Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere, go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ His presence changes everything. Church, there are a hundred different ways that we can play a role in that telling. I'm not naive. Everybody's got a, a different calling. Maybe, maybe your calling is to share the good news with everyone in a small geographic circle that God's placed you in right now. That is a good, God-glorifying thing. Maybe your call is to, to kind of take a bigger step in things like our Lottie Moon offering, offering that we're emphasizing this month, a, a special offering for international missions, and move the needle on some important work that's already going on. Maybe your call is to help someone else get to the other side of the mountain and maybe, maybe your call is to pick up, pick up everything you have, pack up everything you own, and go up on that mountain yourself. I don't know. I don't know, but I, and I can be helpful. I can help walk you through what that response might be. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, our response is really, really simple. We celebrate God's perfect and great love. And then we get busy modeling it. With everything we have in us. Yes, it will be imperfect. Yes, we need God's help to continue to shape us into who he's called us to be that looks more and more like him. We put in the work. And then we help as many others as possible see that great and perfect love too. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. Give you some space to translate head response into action response. But whoever you are, however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for a letter to some churches that were struggling. Maybe we have the same issues as them. Maybe we don't. But beloved, let us love one another. It wasn't a special call on them. It's a call on all your people. Would you guard us from selfish, self-serving definitions of love? Lock our eyes on you and what you have done so that we never stray from that right definition. 
But then God let us love one another well. This Christmas season, as we sing, as we celebrate, as we do all the, the, the good things and the, neoc- and the kind of the nebulous kind of whatever things, whether they're churchy things or not churchy things, would you, would you pull away the distractions? And would our celebration be something that points others to you? We love you. Those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known today? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear? Come get some people this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.